Hi everyone, it's Joakim Akren, your host of the Elite Game Developers Podcast, a podcast about the entrepreneurs and investors who are building the games companies of the future. Today I'm getting interviewed by Erki Lassila, who is a doctoral student in the University of Oulu. It's going to be an interesting talk about the different subjects regarding analytics in gaming and how this is seen as a driving force for free-to-play games. So I have a lot of opinions on this side and hopefully you can leave some thoughts on this on social media when I'm posting the episode there. This podcast is brought to you by Playtest Cloud, who make playtesting mobile games easy and convenient. Playtest Cloud allows game studios to record real gamers playing their mobile games. Just upload your build and Playtest Cloud will take care of the rest. Playtest Cloud offers many different ways to test your game. The cool thing is that you can even upload mockups of the game and get people to answer your questions regarding those mockups. When you have a build, you can just submit it for playtesting with real gamers. And either way, you'll get real and honest feedback from actual players. So Playtest Cloud has their own player pool of about 160,000 players. So you can choose the exact audience and mobile device you want to run your test on. Playtest Cloud allows a safe and secure test to run on people's device. So basically when the test is over, the game will automatically deactivate. Playtest Cloud will take care of everything and you don't need to worry about a thing. And listen to this, guys. For the listeners of the podcast, Playtest Cloud is offering a special promo just for new signups. When you go to playtestcloud.com and click on the sign up button, remember to mention Elite Game Developers in the How Did You Hear About Us menu and they'll upgrade your free trial to a premium free trial. Make playtesting mobile games easy and convenient with Playtest Cloud. Hello, everyone. My name is Erkki Lassila, and I'm an accounting doctoral student working on my dissertation. I'm actually working at the Oulu Business School at the Oulu University on accounting, finance, and department. And uh, I'm actually focusing on the free-to-play gaming development and the markets there and trying to understand the analytics, how they are part of the game development process. And I'm here today interviewing Joachim Akren as one of the professionals in the gaming industry. So hello, Joachim. Could you also tell me about yourself shortly? Hey, Erki. Hi. (laughs) So we met like seven or eight years ago or something in Oulu when I was doing some lectures there regarding free-to-play. This was before I founded Next Games. I had recently left Supercell. And I was starting Next Games with the founders. So my background is very much in being an entrepreneur in gaming. Started my first games company in 2005, doing a virtual world and then Facebook games, then went to Supercell, then founded Next Games and was basically focusing on the product side for the entire stint that I was there. And recently this spring, I basically transitioned away from the company to to start something new, which is the elite game developers, to help people who are getting into starting games companies. That's the the whole mission of elite game developers. Okay. Maybe this interview might be some useful 
for these new game developers also, because I have also kind of a basic question. So what is it about and what's important there? So what do you think if we should start going through some questions I have here? Yeah, I'm ready. Okay, could you briefly describe the general change in the game development in recent years? Yeah, well, I think the big change in the last 12 years or so has been that suddenly playing games changed from PC and console to actually like go into online multiplayer games, which would mean you first played games on the browser and then you played games on the mobile phone. And we used to have maybe 100 or 200 million people playing games in 2007. That shifted radically when we had iOS and Android come out. And now we can talk about 3 billion people playing games. And it shifts so much. One of the big changes there for the development itself has been that people who are in the industry needed to think about games as a service. That you wouldn't anymore create the game and then you would be done with it, and then you could start a new game. But rather, you would continue building that game for years to come and catering to the needs of the players with this live service. Kind of like you'd run a theme park where you previously were just building something, and then you were done, and then you could move on. Mm. So continuous development is part of this current game development. Yes, it's basically just what changed for game developers. So how about in your opinion, is there a certain moment in history or a technical advancement when this new revenue logic of free-to-play became viable in the game development? I would say it's around 10 years ago when Facebook Canvas games started becoming very popular on Facebook. You would have Farmville and other games Cityville, those kind of singer games. And then you had Playfish, several other companies like Playdom coming up with, with games which would have hundreds of millions of players all of a sudden. And you could see that this just blew up the market in a way that nothing previously had existed in gaming like that before. The logic changed from having the premium game into having the live service where you're running a game on your servers and you would basically reach the players yourself and you wouldn't have to deal with a publisher or necessarily at least a publisher. You wouldn't need to deal with a Walmart who puts your game on a shelf. There was no middleman anymore. So you're running everything. You're running the game. You're directly talking with your players. That was never seen before, before the Facebook Canvas days. And then one big change that really helped free-to-play to become a big thing was that game servers were becoming a thing on the cloud. So anybody could start up a new server instance on AWS and start running their game servers there. And also the same for analytics. So you could have your own data warehousing, the pipelines there, and everything also constantly became cheaper and cheaper. So you could, with a small team, with a small budget, already achieve a lot of interesting things. So this removing of this, let's say, the big gatekeepers for the market was one of the big chains 
there. So yeah, small small companies were able to go there if they have a nice idea or at least they could try the market. Yes. In a way, you have a new platform where there is no middleman. You would have mm. like this kind of like gold rush period yeah. for Facebook that happened as well. That people came in, got a lot of free downloads <laughs> in a mm-hmm. sense. The discovery was easier because there was not so much competition. And the same was on mobile in the early days, like 2012, when you would have Supercell coming out with Heyday and Clash of Clans. And the competition was so like small at that stage, mm. not effective at all. So you could have this situation where if you don't have the middlemen, you can just you know grab all the players for yourself and really like reap the benefits of being early. So I think the middlemen being removed is great, but then what happens is that the discovery part goes into the hands of the platform owner. How do they promote the games, the right games, the ones that you're making? They're still kind of like, in a sense, a middleman because they they can keep certain games out of promotion and they can promote certain games that provide like an advantage to their own agenda. What the clever people realized is that you can do user acquisition very effectively if you know that you're going to have a game where people will stay and spend money and you can acquire users through ads very effectively. So in a sense, you bypass the platform middleman by Mm. basically just buying all the users that you effectively know will spend enough in your game to make a profit. Mm. So going to the basically to the logic of free-to-play. So could you explain the revenue logic of the free-to-play games a bit more? Yes. For me personally, this is something that I've been building up as a kind of like a knowledge base that I'm really much more nowadays focused on only engagement when it comes to driving a business in free-to-play. So you want people to come into your game and enjoy it and the game becomes a hobby and they stick around for years and eventually they will spend down the line into this hobby that they have because they have a trust with the developer, a relationship, and they see that value proposition that the game brings for them is something that really hits the nail and they don't want to move on to another game because this certain game is providing so much fun and excitement and it feels like I will still be playing this game for six months, maybe years to come. So that is where the revenue logic lies in. So basically, as you mentioned earlier, that to taking out the middleman, so it was more focused on certain uh, profile of players, like maybe young male players. But after that, you could acquire users users that you thought that would like to play your game. So it would be a bigger market of users that you would actually try to sell your game to, meaning that the free-to-play logic, does it require a bigger market, bigger user base for it to work? I think the opportunities there with a bigger user base is that you can, if you're smart, find the right corner in the market where there is less competition. That is the big Mm. advantage in the modern 
way that people can operate in these platforms like mobile, where you have billions of people playing games nowadays, you can discover the right niche audience, which you can expand upon later on some group of players who might not be catered to yet. So if you make a game for that audience and you acquire them through marketing, you're going to have a really successful business if you play your cards right. Mm. So could you explain the role of analytics and metrics in this game development process? The role definitely is is in the point where you know that your game is going to be going out soon, that you're having a date set already for a soft launch. A soft launch meaning that you're going to test your game with actual players through an app store where people will download it without you telling them to do that for testing purposes. So it's more or less like a a real situation that is happening, that the game is going out to a limited amount of people. Then you should have your analytics and metrics in place to start understanding your players, what they're doing in your game, how they're experiencing the game. Earlier in free-to-play, 10 years ago, during the Facebook days, definitely people didn't know yet what they need to measure. A lot of people weren't measuring anything. A lot of people were measuring totally wrong things, like how many installs we got today. What does that really tell you? So the understanding became that you should always be analyzing the actionable metrics, basically numbers and insights that can lead to a certain action through like how you're improving the game. Mm. So... What, in your opinion, are the most important metrics then? And why those ones? I totally focus on the engagement metrics. There's so many games out there that aren't yet performing well enough, and they're still trying to survive and make enough money for the company to pay salaries. It's like a long tail of Mm. game companies and games which still don't have the right engagement metrics. It might be They don't have the engagement metrics, but they're focusing on monetization. They're focusing on user acquisition. They're burning a possible target audience too early when they should still be focusing on making the game better before they buy users, before they try to get them to spend money. So I talk a lot about engagement metrics, which includes retention numbers and participation in the game in different ways, like looking at sessions, looking at feature participation, like if you have certain features in the game. So all of these numbers will help you to understand why so many players are not playing your game and what is broken in the game. Mm. So basically, what kind of information these metrics have been providing and how this information is used in practice? Yeah, Do you have some examples? Or- the most usual suspect for early game where you need to look at like where the majority because in the first day of your game you will still have a hundred percent of your players and then after the first try you will already be losing people who come back for the second time to the game so focus on that early moment so much that is where you will retain the bulk of your players if possible so one of the first things that you need to look at there is 
course, the tutorial funnel, like you have a tutorial in the game, how many people are dropping at each of the steps there. You might have a character giving instructions. How are people going through those instructions? How many are stopping the game before they reach certain places in that instruction phase? Then you have the, the session length, which is a really good indicator of people wanting to play the game more. So looking at the correlation there between day one retention, well, basically, people who play five minutes of the game on the first day, what is their retention day one? People who play 10 minutes, 15 minutes, you can look at like, are there certain points in the game where it's very difficult for people to continue? Like when they reach 10 minutes in the game, there's a lot of people who just stop there. What is going on there? You need to figure out that then by going into like what is going on in the game, by through playtesting the game yourself, seeing even more details in what is going on through, through different kind of engagement metrics, through like what features players are engaging with there. So this is like very crucial to know that you shouldn't go into a game launch with having a lot of fundamental problems in the game in the early stages. Most of these can be found through playtesting where you watch another person playing in the game just you know over their shoulder you see what's going on because these issues can be revealed way earlier than you need analytics mm. i see this so often that developers make the game don't really run proper playtesting and they're just waiting to get the retention numbers and then they look at the day one being 19%. Then they go and start changing things in the tutorial. And then they run another test. Nothing changed. Why is this? There might be fundamental user experience issues in the first play sessions. Maybe there's like half of the devices in the world just don't run your game. So all of these kind of things should be figured out without analytics. Mm -hmm a lot earlier than you actually launched a game. So going from there, once you've kind of gotten the first play sessions in place, then you should start looking at the different features in the game. How long has the player been in the game versus like how are they engaging with those features? Because then we go into like day one, day three, day seven, different metrics there, seeing if people are playing the game in a certain way. But yeah, I would still focus a lot on the early days. Yeah, so basically that would be then somehow the answer already, but uh, in which development phase these are the most interesting ones, these uh, engagement metrics then? Yeah, for sure. Whenever you start having players in the game. So in the early launch phase or? Yes, it mm. really points out certain things that are hard to reveal through playtesting, like with a few friends and family or playtest cloud, for instance. The hard things there are really to see if you grab a thousand people playing this game that you have, are they interested in playing a game like this? Or is there something else in the market already kind of giving them satisfaction for their needs in this same kind of genre? Maybe let's say you're doing a golf game. Hey, we're going to do a golf game. We're playtesting it. It feels nice. Then you put it out and you notice that 
oh shit, the retention numbers aren't really good at all. So it can reveal this kind of competitive landscape in a totally different way that you didn't understand. The differentiations there might be that this game actually doesn't differentiate enough from the competition. And why would they shift from playing this other golf game? Why would they come to my golf game? One way there to understand the market better is to look at, let's say, the top 200 grossing list or even top 500. How many golf games does that list contain? Mm -hmm. If you compare to another genre, let's say puzzle games, there's a lot more puzzle games than golf games on that list. So it could mean that the players who love golf games aren't as fanatically playing all the golf games that are out there versus people who love puzzle games. They might be in the habit of switching between different puzzle games that they're playing day to day. One way to understand if this is happening in your genre is to talk to the players who are fanatic about a certain kind of game. Maybe they're not actually in it for the actual golf experience, but there's other motivations there like competition, which could be driven by some other factor than just, you know, golf itself. Mm -hmm. It's very important to understand what the target audience wants. Mm -hmm. And you would say that the kind of uh, engagement metrics and these uh, metrics could provide some of the clues, but then you also would need some other sources of information, such as the, the user experience uh, tests beforehand. And, and yes, that's all very crucial. Yeah. So in terms of uh, game development process, how do you know if you have then succeeded in your work? I mean some of the metrics start pouring in, but uh, how do you know if you have succeeded or not? Yeah. In a way, you don't want to lose your players at all. Mm. So when they're coming back to the game, you're seeing that the day zero and day one are looking bright. Well, how do you move forward from there? Because the danger is that people start dropping off later on. So the first indicator after day one is to look at the day three to day one ratio, which sort of mm. like gives you an indication of how much people are falling off from the game. If you take an example of day one being 50%, which is very healthy and looks like, yes, this is going to be a winner. Then you go on to day three retention. It's 25%. So you lost half of your players into three days. Well, the realities of free-to-play is that you need to keep those players for a long period of time, <laughs> like talking about years. So starting off with that kind of like drop there in the first three days is unacceptable. So <clears throat> the ratio that you're looking for there, which is something that a lot of people have actually compared through looking at App Annie's retention numbers on a lot of the top grossing games. So the one kind of commonality between top grossing games is that the day three to day one ratio should be around 0.7 or higher, meaning mm -hmm. that day three would be like 33% and day one was 50. You're already like close enough to the 0.7, but it's more like the higher you can get this ratio, the better you are off 
because it indicates already the slope, the descent of people leaving the game. And going from there, from day three, you can look at the day seven to day three ratio. Is the slope still the same, 0.7? And going from there to day 14 to day seven, having a similar, like kind of like people aren't leaving in masses at some point. That indicates a healthy game. And then you continue to go to day 60 to day 30 ratio. The drop is still very stable and in your hands. And it means that every day you are adding new cohorts of installs. But what it means that all the previous days that the game has been live, you're still retaining a big chunk of people from each cohort and your daily active user number is increasing. This is something that you shouldn't even launch a game if you cannot achieve these kind of figures. In a sense, if you want to have a successful business around free-to-play, the retention numbers are what you should live with. Mm. So basically, that's a kind of a kind of a game, a free-to-play game market standard, as you were saying. So it's kind of a 0.7 that the top-crossing games should have, or they have this ratio. And otherwise, you are not able to, or it's hard to get there. It is. It's something that they have in common. Mm. Uh, a lot of those games that are on the charts have been there for over five years. In a sense, I do not think that the developers back then had the knowledge to look at this ratio as scientifically as we're now talking here. It's more or less something that they were definitely focusing on building a game for a market that was not catered to yet. Of course, it's very competitive market nowadays, and it is one of the reasons why the top 50 hasn't changed that much. If you look at the list, there's a lot of games that are over six years old there. They are satisfying the needs of players so well. So the competition has a hard time to actually break into that list. Would you have any simple kind of uh, examples of the ways, okay, let's say that the ratio is not there, it's far away from there. Some simple methods to trying to fix it. Yeah, it's really understanding what people like about mobile games in your mm-hmm. target audience. What is missing there? What are the reasons that the players don't, like, why do they not have reasons to return to the game? Mm boils down into like understanding mobile game design or free-to-play mm. game design specifically. So it's, there's a million reasons, mm. but it's mostly related to what is the goal of the player to return to the game. Are mm. they feeling that they have motivation, they have things to achieve, their satisfaction of the game is being in the right place for them mm. specifically. So basically trying to understand the needs and then trying to make some changes to the game so that those needs would be more better aligned. Yes, it can be in like what the visual style is, how the user experience works, how are things communicated, how long does everything take, all the Mm -hmm. annoying parts, like loading times, million things there. But Mm -hmm. one of the big things definitely is setting goals for the player. 
could you specify the main focus areas of free-to-play metrics? Yes. It's really like the engagement metrics are the most important thing. And if they're not working, it doesn't really matter like how much focus you put on on the other parts of like if you're listing like things, what other stuff people are looking at through metrics like user acquisition, monetization. Those really don't work unless you figure out all the, the engagement problems that you have. So focus first on the engagement and then if that engine works then figure out the monetization and the user acquisition. I always have some hard time to understand how can I have a good engagement without any users? And that's my kind of, a, that comes to the user acquisition part that without the users, I cannot make a good engagement. So if I'm a game developer, how can I then get the users that I need to see any figures, any metrics, what is my engagement? For that phase, you would already need to know how the game works, in a sense, through playtesting. That you know, if you're entering a certain genre in games, like I picked up the golf example, so I'll use that again, that you're on the same level as the competition regarding like how good of a game you have in mm. your hands. I think that is a very good measure of does it really matter if I have users or not? If the game isn't on the same level or experience level as much fun as the competition, it doesn't really matter what metrics you're going to be looking at. Mm -hmm. If you achieve that level and you know you have achieved it, you're a game developer, so you should know the reasons why people play another golf game. And what it feels like, you play it yourself, you get the feel, and then you play your own game and you get the feel mm. there as well. You could even have a friend next to you who's playing the golf game and then you mm. give them your game and you understand. And you can ask the right questions there. Is this a game that you'd feel bad if you couldn't play anymore? <laughs> mm. That kind of understanding, if you get confidence through those questions, that you're on the right track to making a successful game, then it's a happy problem to find the users, in a sense. <laughs> then you can approach a lot of different ways. If you don't have investor money that you cannot do, like buy Facebook ads, which aren't very expensive. So if you reserve a budget of a few thousand euros or dollars, you can already seed enough users into your soft launch with that money, without feeling that, oh no, how do I achieve this? It's not an, a big problem. Learning to actually like run those ads is a day's work of looking at some YouTube tutorial videos of how do you set up Facebook ads. That kind of phase is not the worst. And if you feel that I don't have any money to run this test, then you can reach out to publishers. And the message there should be that we have perfected our game by going to other people who play games in the same genre. And here's the data. We can prove that this game is already on par with the competition that we want to do a soft launch now. And can you help us? I think that there are enough publishers out there that if you come with this kind of approach to them, they would see, oh, you're, you're definitely 
looking at this in a different way. You're not just waiting for us to validate your game idea, but you have already done your own validation through this kind of qualitative research. So basically, you are saying that, okay, you have an option to buy purchase users or then to go for some publisher, but would you recommend someone to try some third option? Or is there actually a third option? Not really. But the publisher model, there's different publisher models for sure. There are commitments for if they run the test, they can publish it or they might not want you to commit to them at all. They're rather like doing it in a good spirit. So it really depends. But I would say those are the two ways that either you fund the test yourself and you set up everything, the data analytics, everything, or you let somebody else help you out with this. So basically, there's no option that I'm developing a game which I have measured and validated it and just try to publish it in some of the platforms and uh, hope that people will find it. Yes, yes. that is impossible, okay. really. You can do that, but mm. you might see one install a day. Then you will need to go back to this, either doing your own user acquisition test or to find some partner that will help you. So what would be the way for me to try to calculate how much should I invest or, for example, user acquisition in that phase? Or should I try to find the publisher and what does it cost me? Or is there some? Yes, there are a few ways that I would approach if I would be in this situation. So I have a game, use the golf example again. I would want to have 500 to 1,000 installs to have proper metrics for the day zero. And then I would look into asking basically people in the industry what do you think the cost per install will be for my golf game? Mm. And if my golf game is having a lot of competition already in the market, I know for a fact that the cost per install will be several euros per install. So in a sense, you should reserve a lot of money, like five to 10,000 for these kind of tests. But as said, it is a happy problem. At mm. that stage. So I wouldn't stress too much about this testing. You can already prove so many other things before going into having a user acquisition test. Yeah. So how do you use then those monetization metrics? Well, it's so much about the engagement. So once that's figured out, which is not an <laughs> easy thing, then you should look at the monetization options there for the game. And in a sense, there was this old saying that you cannot slap monetization on to a game like later in the development phase. But I would rather say that you cannot slap the engagement on <laughs> into a game in the later stage, which I believe is happening even a lot more. So it's much harder to fix your core gameplay and the meta game working together if you haven't done that as the first thing you do, if that is your afterthought to fix the core gameplay, that's where the issues will start. So first figure out that you have a game which will retain people for days, months, years to come. And if you have that process in place that you guarantee 
that the end game is fun and you still have ways to go before you have finished the game, then you can look at monetization. So in monetization, what you first should think about is the LTV, which is the lifetime value of your player. Basically, you take a player in the game who starts playing the game, plays it for a week, two weeks, a month. Then he buys something for 10 euros. And then he doesn't buy anything for a while. And at that point, half a year later, he's only bought this one 10 euro thing. His lifetime value is 10 euros. So using that and then putting together like a chunk of people that you got into the game, for instance, let's say from the United States starting last week's Monday, which is now eight days ago, you could say that their LTV at day eight is this much on average. So thinking about if you had a thousand people who started there, you probably lost already something like in the magnitude of 400 of those people already churned out of the game because of retention, how it works in free-to-play. But you have 400 people and 10% have spent. So you have 40 people out of 400 who have bought something. So you look at 40 people spending. Okay, that group of people spent 1,000 euros into the game. But the original cohort was 1,000 people. So the LTV would be $1 now or 1 euro at day 8. And then, of course, time goes forward. And the less people you have in this cohort playing the game, the less likely it is that this LTV will grow ever. So that's why I'm constantly going back to engagement. You need people to come back to actually like achieve higher LTVs. If this group of people is shrinking constantly, even those people who put 10 euros in the game are quitting. Like what happens then? You don't really have a business, a viable business in your hands. And where you take this LTV from there is once it starts working, you can start using it as a tool to actually run cost-effective user acquisition. Or basically having a positive user acquisition campaign running where you know that I'm going to buy these users and then I will know that in a month or two I will get my money back and everything Mm. that comes after that is positive. So in a way, that is one of the reasons why, why LTV is kind of like the king there in the monetization area. Of course, you can go into like small details of looking at Hey, what am I selling in the game? What is making money? Is this item or that item selling? But then it goes back into engagement. You look at what the game is providing. Is it kind of like giving the players a satisfaction for a certain need in the game? And it isn't monetization metrics. It is engagement metrics again. So it's in a way an, an engine that engages the players' satisfactions. Mm. But then how can you try to influence the behavior of these potential users in these different areas? Like, how can you try to find ways for providing something that they need? The main thing that's always talked about is this term called conversion. So you're looking at people who come to the App Store, they go to your game there in the App Store. There's a conversion from people who see your game in the App Store to actually install. That is some percentage. And then you have another percentage of people who go from the install to actually completing the tutorial. That is, 
yet another step. So you have a funnel where you're putting people in. And then the last part of the funnel, well, not the last, it's still funnel continues forever. But then you have a person who is actively playing the game that they go from active player to active spender. So in a sense, you're changing people going from not knowing your game to seeing your game to installing it to completing the tutorial to becoming somebody who returns to the game often to being somebody who spends and maybe spends often maybe has been in the game for six months a year their engagement is on a healthy stable situation where they're going through different kind of things in the game unlocking new things beating harder content having fun it helps so much if you know what is going on so it goes back to understanding the target audience and you're catering to the needs of the gamer so that's what it's fundamentally all about that you need to understand why are they in your game what is working for them what is not working for them and fixing those things so are we also talking about then this A-B testing of different sorts of things to see what works and what's not working that well? Or how would we make changes to define or decide what type of change is a good change? Yes, it is something that developers should look into once they have enough players. Hmm. So the problem with the A-B testing usually is that if you don't have enough people in your game, you cannot get statistically significant results from your tests to actually point out one option is better than the other. And this is something I've seen a lot. And these tests usually need to run for a long time because they're free-to-play games. So you need to see what, how it affects their retention going forward for months. And if you have a test running, you cannot really go and change the experience of these people because otherwise you're going to be contaminating their test. So A-B testing isn't one of the most effective tools, I would say. I would say that researching the market and understanding the target audience is always a much better tool than A-B mm. testing to make decisions. Okay, but then how would you define the criteria for killing the game development project? Yeah. It's never easy. So I was recently talking to Round Zero, which is the publishing entity of Fingersoft, who is in Oulu in your hometown, because they have a tool nowadays where developers can basically go to their website and start a UA test for their game. Pretty much a few buttons and upload in an APK there. So it's really something that a lot of developers will need who don't have the resources to set up their own analytics and run their own tests. They have run a user acquisition test to get numbers for certain games, like I think six times was the record, until the developer said that I won't do any more tests, that we're going to kill the game. So I, I think it becomes harder to kill the game the more time you have put into developing the game, because you still might have faith that you can find a solution to fix the game. But I'm usually very keen on seeing this kind of like constant progress with the updates that you're doing. That if you cannot find progress through the updates, you should be asking yourself that, do I feel confident that 
I know why I cannot improve these engagement metrics. Is there something that we have overlooked in the development process? Do we have all the information that we can on the target audience, the market situation, and what is our game not providing to them that Mm -hmm. they need? And then with the market situation, I definitely mean the competition because there might be other games that just cater to their needs in a much more sufficient way. I think one really important point there is criteria for killing a game. Nobody has a like clear cut on this, how you do it, but you need to understand what is going on with the game, with the market. Ask for advice because if it's really hard for you to do, you couldn't mm. ask for outsiders. What would you do if you you were running this game? <laughs> so mm. there might be clear reasons that you haven't just realized. But then if, if the situation rises, so if there are opposing views or conflicting ideas about the direction to be taken in the game development, either killing or not, or something else, how these kind of situations are then handled or should be handled from your opinion? And do the analytics metrics play a role in these situations or conflicting ideas? Well, yeah, of course, like early on in the project, when you still don't have a lot of data, it goes into the pointers that I just mentioned about really understanding the market situation and the target audience, and also understanding that the game that you're building, if it's satisfying the needs of the players. This is something that one person in the team cannot really you know, grasp only. It needs to be something that the whole team is aligned with for the reasoning. And having this kind of like a, a discussions with your team is always important to go through what is going on. Where do we see this kind of situation there? And are these arguments grounded in some facts? Yeah, the one alignment there that you need to come up with in the game design early stages is what is the market situation? How will it develop in the next 12 to 18 months? And think about the audience. What do they need right now? And if is something coming soon that will take over their need? How fast do we need to run to actually achieve this opportunity that we might have? Mm. So later on, like when you have a game, when you have data, but if you see something like happening there that people are just, you know, leaving the game after a few months of playing the game, you should still first look into what is going on under the hood with the game design. Is there enough things for the player to achieve in the end game? Do they have interesting goals to achieve as players? Do they have harder content to beat? New items and characters to unlock and collect? that are meaningful. You can have a million characters in your game, but if all of those characters are pretty much the same meaning for you as a player, they don't really feel something that you want to go after. You want to invest time to unlock them. So if those kind of like loops in the game stop working and stop being interesting for the players, you should go back to a drawing board and design your way out of the issue. What about then, if you look at the analytics, how they relate to the future risks and some predictions about the game and the development of the game? 
Yeah, that's a good question. It's a, the things there that really come up with is that you can be looking at the analytics every day and then you see that people aren't spending as much money in the end game as we thought they would be. Mm-hmm. And maybe you're observing it that they're on the highest player level that the spending just flatlines there. What you should definitely be looking at is does it also cause people to leave? Because that isn't easy always to look at because you have a you might have a DAU number that you're looking at. Oh, it's pretty stable. People are leaving, but they're probably just leaving because we had a nice feature on, on the App Store and now it's gone and it's stabilizing the DAU. But it might actually be happening that you're dropping a lot of people who've spent a lot of money into the game mm-hmm. in the end game where there's nothing interesting to do anymore. So they spent as much money as they want, but now they're dropping out because they bought everything and mm. moving to other games. So those are kind of like future risks mm. that a lot of free-to-play developers will bump into that their content just wasn't enough for the heavy spenders. Then who is the one who is like who should be responsible for generating these uh, algorithms for analytics? How do you calculate stuff? Who is the one that should be there? Most of the teams that I've seen in companies that are taking things seriously, <laughs> of course, it, it depends. If you're a small startup that doesn't have funding, it really helps if you can have a publisher who can have analytics people to help out. It's not a, not a crime to go and ask for help from these publishers. But once you have an established business where you have revenue coming in, you should look into having dedicated people who will kind of like be responsible for the analytics. So you have a maybe a data scientist, data engineer. And the difference there is that you have a data engineer who sets up the pipeline so that you have data coming in. And then you have the data scientists who puts up the dashboards. But then you have these people. How do you kind of like make sure that they're being used effectively? Well, what I've seen is that Oftentimes, the game goes live and we don't have any dashboards or we only have a few dashboards. So what happens then is that the analytics people become a bottleneck for actually knowing what's going on in the game because they only can build so many dashboards in one day. It requires still a lot of work. So there, what I think works well is that you have your game designers people who are working on the game, the product people and the analytics people go into one room and have a goal in mind to come up with the top 10 dashboards that they will need to have live when the game goes live regarding the core gameplay, the meta game, and the live ops. And still you need to have all the retention dashboards and everything on top of that. But in a way, like the specific questions that you want to be answered through your dashboards should be there from day one. Then it's more about the ad hoc stuff will be sort of like taken care of through these top dashboards. Mm. But then how decisions are made and what they are based on before any consumer telemetry data is available? It's so much about the market dynamics and the target audience. That is the thing that all the developers who are working in free-to-play should know the audience well enough so that they don't need to leave anything for chance later on, like minimizing that 
is the most important thing. You cannot really do enough work through just waiting for a soft launch because then you might end up in a situation that, oh no, we don't have any money left in the company. What do we do now? And then people leave and that was that. So minimizing the risks is that you understand what is going on in the market, understand the target audience, understand how do you make games for mobile? How do you make games that are free to play? That is the important fact. And that is something that if you're not focusing on looking into these facts, then there's a recipe for a disaster. Mm. So when looking into these facts, then could you give an example of how then some non-financial user behavior could be translated into financial figures? So how can we, if we only see behavior of people, they're leaving or they're coming or how is it translated into financial figures? Yeah, it's a good question. The one thing is that doing these kind of predictions, you have a few tool sets that you can use there. So one is that if you have a live game already, you can look at previous cohort data from the same geographical location, like let's say players from the US. What kind of lifetime value are they generating in the game? And then you can already base your assumptions on the future based on previous cohorts. But then if you still don't have data, I think one of the best options there is to model the game economy and to understand what is the player's desire to spend in the game when they reach day 60, day 90, and so on, and the end game. If you can define this is where the players have collected as much as they can and look at how much money they will be spending to reach that point in a month or two. And then you can kind of like keep up with having enough content for even the higher spenders that they don't become bored and move away from the game. Because if you have people who have spent in the game, you definitely want them to to stay in the game. Maybe even they don't spend, but they're still going to be engaging and having fun in the game. That is the number one motive there. Mm. How do you see the the raw behavioral data, does it have any value as such? Or does it need some more different ways of uh, taking it forward to get some information out? Or is the raw data valuable? Yes and no. I would say it comes down to understanding what the players are doing, but not only through raw data, but understanding what they like about the game, what they dislike, Do they feel that they have goals, long-term goals in the game, and they're meaningfully moving towards achieving these goals? And this is like sentiment on the player's side. So one way to get into the player's heads is to conduct surveys. So these kind of like sentiment questions, like you could ask the player that, from one to five, one being totally disagree to five being totally agree, you would ask, I have strong goals that I'm working towards or that I have ways to work towards the goals in the game or that I have short-term goals or I have long-term goals. 
Like asking those kind of questions will reveal so much of, is this something that this player is feeling that they want to come back and still work towards achieving things? So in a free-to-play game, if you have a player there who has played for a year, it is super interesting to hear if they still have meaningful goals in the game. Mm. Then how would you be able to calculate or decide the amount of investment or resources needed for collecting and handling and storing this raw data? How would you decide that? Yeah, good question. It feels to me that it is usually underestimated, but the, the common sense approach is that you need to have one person who is setting up the data engineering there, that they're basically putting in the event collecting and the pipelines towards the data warehousing. And then you have another person who is preparing the data for analysis and then doing the dashboards based on the analysis data, the data that has been crunched into more readable format. But like thinking about like small teams when you have a minimal group of people, it is it is very difficult. So what I've seen startups do who know what they're doing is that they bought some sort of an analytics server. So they basically set up the event collecting and then the analytics service is robust enough that they get the data in a sense that they can read it without having actual data people in there. So limitations there is that you might need to have your designer being the data scientist as well and taking away the time that they would otherwise be putting into making the game better, the engagement better. So I think that is the place where you need to know that somebody needs to do it. Somebody needs to build the dashboards, crunch the data. It is somebody's work. So hiring one data analyst is not a bad idea when you're going live with your game, that you know that you're going to go live. So don't hire one if you don't yet have a game where you know that it makes sense to go forward and look at metrics. Mm. So we have been talking about a lot of these numbers and, and analytics and stuff like that. But then I think gaming is also kind of a creative business. So how would you define creativity in game development? Good question. Creativity is there for sure. But it is great to create the sandbox around the creativity by understanding the market, the target audience, and those factors will create a more healthy and less risky place for operating as a game developer. So with the market, I mean the competition. Is the competition already satisfying the needs of the players? How hard will it be to go in there? What other realities of similar games that are out there? And then the target audience, meaning who is your player? What drives them to play these kind of games? Are they competitive? Are they social? Do they love stories? What not? All of this goes back into the market again. Is there a big market there? Is it a market that is already playing the games? So when you have those kind of realities as facts that you can discuss them and that whole team agrees on them, then you start creating the sandbox. Then you start creating the game inside this and being creative. Because then you know that the creativity isn't sort of like conflicting with what you yet don't know. 
this is sort of the dynamics that what I see works really well for a successful game. And as we know, the game developers are there to make good games, as they say. I would also like to ask you that how would you define a good game? Good question again. Thank you, Erki. <laughs> good game is an interesting definition. I think it's always, you have to have a goal in mind. What do you want to achieve with the game? In a sense, that is another word for a good game is what is your end state? What are you aiming for? Do you want commercial success? Do you want to be top grossing number one game? Do you want to be somewhere in the average? I think the good game is something that, for me personally, is something that it pays your development team's salaries and you get some money into the bank to actually hire more people to build a company and build more games. So that, for me, feels like a good game. And uh, because of having these ambition levels that usually entrepreneurs have, that they don't want to stay small. So having a game which creates enough money to actually be a sustainable business. And then for the next game, you could think already that, hey, we learned so much from the first game. The definition for the good game has changed and we're gunning for a bit bigger results, doing even better with the next game. So I would say always go back to the good game being something that it actually makes enough money that the development is paid for and you can build a proper business. Mm. Continuity. Exactly. Okay, I would say that we are reached quite at the end of my questions, but uh, is there anything else that you would like to add or highlight, you know, about the gaming business or analytics or something which we haven't been talking about? Yeah, I think it's ever-changing and there's more and more better ways to understand how the player needs can be satisfied and creating novel, cool games is, will be continued to be investigated and I will do my best to share these kind of findings on the podcast in the future as well. So stay tuned. Thank you very much, Joachim, about this and... Uh... Let's see what happens in the future. Maybe we need some analytics for that. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Erki. Thanks. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Thanks, Erki, for all the great questions that you came up with. It's very valuable to have these discussions and hopefully a lot of people got a lot of good ideas from this discussion. Please leave a review on iTunes or Apple Podcasts so that future games entrepreneurs also find this podcast and get all the lessons that we're sharing here. Talk to you soon again, guys. Bye-bye.